you would, uh, if, uh, let's turn together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, we started in verses 1 through 5 last week, and we'll be focusing on 6 through 11 today, but we'll read the, the whole context there uh, of verses 1 through 11. Oh, and I did want to say, I forgot to say this last week, uh, just in terms of helpful resources for the book of Acts, I found this. This is Acts, A Visual Guide by Kevin DeYoung, and then the illustrations are by Chris Ranson. Kevin is the pastor of Christ Covenant PCA in Matthews, North Carolina, and he preached about 60 sermons or so on the book of Acts, and then this guy went and listened to all of them and illustrated them. So it's a kind of a cool, I don't know if you're a visual thinker, if those things help you, he illustrates each sermon, the points, and, and uh, it's kind of a helpful little tool. So that might be helpful for children. I'm not going to be preaching from this, obviously, but it is a helpful guide through the book of Acts. And so if you have children or even adults, if you're interested in this, I would commend it to you. Uh, it's a helpful resource. We go to God's Word. So let's, uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or at times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you be seated and let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, you have promised that as the snow and rain fall to the ground and bring forth fruit, so also your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. So we pray that you would accomplish your purpose today in our midst, that we would receive your word with faith and love, that we would lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Give us understanding and help us in all things to see Jesus. 
For we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Many of you, I think, uh, are familiar with or perhaps have read the Lord of the Rings uh, books by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, written back in the uh, middle of the 20th century. They're long books. There's there's three of them in in the trilogy. They're wonderful books. And uh, the, the story of the Lord of the Rings... Uh, reminds me of the story of the book of Acts in many ways. Uh, Without getting into all the details, part of what the Lord of the Rings story is about is about a a king who is returning to claim his rightful throne. But in order to claim the throne as his own and restore order and peace to the kingdom, evil has to be conquered. And the way in which the evil in the story is conquered is through humble means. Uh, A short little hobbit named Frodo Baggins, who takes a ring crafted by an evil lord back to its source of origin, this volcanic mountain of doom, drops the ring into the lava so that it and the evil lord are destroyed and the king can bring peace. That's the way the story uh, ends, essentially. Frodo goes on this long, arduous, dangerous journey to take the ring back to its origin in order to destroy it. He accomplishes his mission through much peril, uh, and the king is enthroned in his rightful place and begins to bring order to this kingdom. And after all that happens, Frodo and his companions, these three other hobbits, go back to their home, which is called the Shire. And all of these things in the Shire have happened in their absence. Things are out of order. There's disruption. There's corruption in those who are leading the Shire. And Frodo Baggins and his friends return as these victorious champions, having conquered evil. Nobody knows that they've done it in the Shire. They have no idea what's happened. Uh, But in a sense, Frodo and his companions come back to bring and to apply the results of this victory and the enthronement of the king back to the Shire. And so when they come back and they see all the corruption, the disruption going on in their village, uh, they begin to overturn the evil that's there. They begin to restore order and peace to their home with the announcement of this good news and the application of this good news that evil has been conquered and the king has been placed upon his throne. In many ways, the book of Acts is similar to that. It's an unfolding of this narrative of the announcement and the application of the good news that King Jesus has conquered sin through his death and resurrection, that he has established his kingdom as he has ascended up into heaven and sits now at the right hand of the Father on high. And he is carrying out his purpose, expanding his kingdom over all the earth, through the announcement of this good news by his witnesses and the application of that good news by the power of his Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see today in these uh, verses, verses 6 through 11 in particular, is kind of the official commissioning of the church, the apostles here, but us included in that as the church, the official commissioning of the church to carry out this role as witnesses to the good news of Jesus. And so we see, uh, following up from last week where we looked through verse 5, we see this continued conversation between Jesus and his disciples. 
And at the heart of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, the apostles uh, here after his resurrection, but before he ascends into heaven, at the heart of this conversation is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, And really, the kingdom of God frames the whole book of Acts. We start here in chapter 1. Jesus teaches them about the kingdom. They have questions about the kingdom. And then at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison. People are coming to visit him, and he's teaching them. And guess what he's teaching them about? He's teaching them about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ. So the book of Acts focuses in many ways upon the kingdom. And here in this passage, we see three things unfolding for us as the apostles are commissioned to this task of being witnesses. We see some kingdom confusion. We see kingdom mission and power. And then we see this call to kingdom work while we wait for the king to return. Kingdom confusion, kingdom mission and power, kingdom work while we wait. Let's look first at kingdom confusion. Uh, Notice Jesus in verse 3 spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, And here you have in verse 6, they've gathered together with Jesus and they ask this question. They're they're a little confused um, and they don't have all the information that they desire. So they ask him this question saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Jesus answers that question in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 saying, it's not for you to know uh, when this will happen, uh, but all you need to know is that you're going to receive power to be witnesses here, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. The disciples seem to have some confusion over what's next. Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's about to return back up into heaven, and the disciples are wondering, what's next? Are are you going to establish, reestablish, restore your kingdom now in Jerusalem? Now that you've accomplished all of these things is now the time. They have some confusion about the nature of Jesus's kingdom. Now, they're not completely off base here. There is some Old Testament background to this question that they have. The prophets, uh, particularly Isaiah, connect the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the restoration of Zion, of God's people in the Davidic kingdom. Isaiah connects all of these things. And, And these disciples of Jesus, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises. They knew the prophecies about the king who would come and restore the throne of David in Jerusalem. So this is what they're expecting. Okay, Jesus, you've died. You've risen from the dead. And now you're going to maybe overthrow the Roman Empire who was in charge at this time. Maybe now you're going to overthrow the empire and establish your throne here in Jerusalem and bring the fullness of the kingdom promised all the way back in uh, the Old Testament, promised to David and his descendants. Their confusion is somewhat justified because this is what they were expecting. But notice there's three areas where they were a little bit confused about what the kingdom was going to be like. They thought the kingdom would be largely national, ethnic, 
specific to Israel as God's chosen people. But Jesus has a different emphasis. They remembered the promises about the restoration of the kingdom in Israel, but they had forgotten, perhaps, the prior, deeper, more foundational promises made earlier in the Old Testament. In Eden, Eden is a small picture of the whole world. Adam and Eve representing the entirety of the people of God. And they're given this mission. You remember what the the Great Commission was to Adam and Eve uh, before sin entered the world? Multiply. Be fruitful. Fill the earth with others made in the image of God who love the living God and walk in fellowship and communion with him. That was the original design. Fill the earth with people who love the living God and walk in fellowship with him. Sin comes in and, and disrupts that. And there's a need for this promised redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, be bruised in the process of bringing redemption and rest, a prophecy of Jesus all the way back in Genesis 3. But there is still, all the way through the Old Testament, this thread of universal proclamation of the good news of Jesus. God calls Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he will be God to Abraham and to his descendants after him, and that through Abraham's family, God will bring a blessing not just to Abraham's descendants, but to all the nations of the earth. This is God's design, to bless the entire world through his people. Limited in the Old Testament to Israel, but expanded in the New Testament to all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The disciples were a little confused. Is this a national kingdom limited to Israel, set up in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, no. This is a kingdom that's going to start here, because that's where it begins, but it's going to go out to all the earth. All the nations need to hear that Jesus has risen from the dead and brings forgiveness So it's not a national, it's a universal kingdom. It's not limited to Israel, it expands to all the nations. They also have some confusion thinking that maybe it's an earthly kingdom. Maybe Jesus will somehow rule in some political royal fashion as a king in Jerusalem, setting up a kingdom on earth. But this is a spiritual kingdom. Uh, a kingdom in which God rules and reigns in the hearts of his people by the power of his spirit, wherever they are, and to whatever nationality or state, country they belong. It's a spiritual kingdom not bound by political boundaries, right? And and so when we confess in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That, That word Catholic simply means universal, that it's, it's the church across the globe. All those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus from every nationality, they are the church universal. And Jesus clarifies their confusion. It's not just for Jerusalem. All the ends of the earth need to hear. They also have some confusion about the timing of the kingdom. Is it now? Is, is this it? We were waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He was born. He died. He was buried. He's risen again from the dead. Is it now that the kingdom will be brought in its fullness according to these expectations from the old covenant? And Jesus says yes and no. The kingdom is both 
now and, and not yet. If you go through the Gospels, there's all these questions about, is the kingdom now? Is the kingdom here? And Jesus points to his miracles, and he says, are the, can the blind see? Do the lame walk? Are the, the sick made well? If this is happening, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. And yet the kingdom has not come in its fullness. There's still sin. There's, there's still those who resist the king. Uh, there's still the effects of sin permeating the world. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. It's still coming. He has established it, but it has not yet covered the globe as the waters cover the sea. It's both now and not yet. Perhaps they expected an immediate national fulfillment of this kingdom, and Jesus says yes and no. It's here, but it's expanding. It's coming uh, in fullness one day, uh, but not yet. Do we have the same kind of confusion as we think about ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ? Do we sometimes limit who, who we think ought to belong to the church? Do we put artificial man-made boundaries on who we think should be brought into the kingdom? Some, some writers call this uh, a tribal mentality, that the church, maybe think of the local church, the particular church, perhaps the church should just consist of people who are like me, who, who look like me, who think like me, who act like me, who dress like I do. Um, we, we oftentimes make ourselves the standard of what the boundaries of the church ought to be. The disciples said, are you restoring your kingdom now to Israel, to the people that you chose in the Old Testament, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham? And Jesus says, no, it's far wider. It's, it's, far, it's, it's far greater than just this particular people. And this is a struggle all throughout the book of Acts. It's not resolved till Acts 15 and the Jerusalem council there. Who belongs? Do you have to become Jewish in order to belong to the church? And the answer is resoundingly no. But we often do this. We think about only those who are on the inside and often fail to look at those who are on the outside and figure out ways to bring them in to the inside. Uh, but Jesus' kingdom is for all who will trust him. And there are no other requirements other than that. Uh, no ethnic, no, no socioeconomic requirements, only trusting Christ, repenting of sin. We have the same challenge. We're often tempted to just look for those who are like us rather than looking for all those who are in need of the Savior, which is everybody. So there's kingdom confusion. Jesus answers this confusion uh, by pointing to the mission and the power of the mission of the kingdom. Notice in verses 7 through 8, uh, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Don't worry about the timing. Don't worry about when the kingdom will come in its fullness. Um, probably you know Christians are often worried and concerned about the timing of, of this event, right? How many, uh, how often throughout the years do we see somebody somewhere claiming 
I've figured it out. I've done the math. I've worked all the numbers from the book of Revelation, and I've figured out when Jesus is going to come, date, and time. And I know when it's happening. Have you all heard these things before? Uh, there was a real famous one, a guy named Harold Camping, uh, who uh, actually was in the, the, um, the Christian Reformed Church at, at some point. I don't think he remained in that. Uh, he's with Jesus now, so I think all his, answer, all his questions have been answered. But he, he made several claims throughout his life, picking dates very specifically. Jesus is coming now, and then it wouldn't happen. So you know what he did? Well, I was wrong on some of the math. He's coming now. And multiple times this kind of confusion happened. And yet Jesus says here, don't, don't worry about that. It is not for you to know. Uh, for your purposes, it doesn't matter. What matters is it's coming. The Father has set the boundaries of that. He has the authority to do it as he pleases, to bring the kingdom in its fullness, to bring history to its close. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the timing. You've got a mission. And, and Jesus says the mission here is for you to be my witnesses, for you to take the good news that you have received the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus and righteousness in Christ that you have received and trusted in, for you to take that and to bear witness to it wherever he places you. They started in Jerusalem and then it went out from there. But wherever you are, he calls us to be witnesses. Don't try to figure out all the details. Trust Christ and bear witness to him as your mission. But he gives power, he promises power with this mission. Notice verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that power is to be witnesses. And we might ask, what is it that the Holy Spirit does in this role in equipping his people to be witnesses? Uh, let me give you three, uh, three things, three things that he does. Uh, one... The Holy Spirit prepares you. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, he prepares you to be a witness. In the Gospels, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be brought before kings and rulers. Don't worry about what you will say in that day. The Holy Spirit will give you words. He will give you confidence and content in that moment when you need it to bear witness to the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit prepares you. Uh, you don't have to rely on yourself. <laughs> the, the progress of the gospel, the expansion of the kingdom of God, is not built upon our strength and ability. It's a spiritual kingdom carried forward with spiritual power. And so Jesus promises power to prepare us to be his witnesses through your own repentance of sin, your own trusting in the gospel of God's free grace for forgiveness, your own walking in humility and faith and leaning upon the promises of God and living that out in your life to display good works for the glory of the Father. The Holy Spirit prepares you to be his witnesses. Reading the Bible, praying, fellowship with other Christians, all of this he uses the Holy Spirit also prepares those to whom you will bear witness. He goes ahead of us. 
He softens hearts. He provides you with opportunities where somebody shows up in your path, in your sphere of influence, and life is difficult, or they've got questions, or they've started reading the Bible and they have no idea what it means, and they're struggling to try to come to terms with the claims of Christ, and God just places them in your path. And, and he's, he's done all the work. He's prepared their heart. He's softened the field of their heart to receive the seed of God's word. And you've been prepared. And all of a sudden, you've got this opportunity. And you start to talk about the love of God in Christ and forgiveness of sins and the need for faith and repentance. And the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, gives them a new heart. And they hear and they receive for the first time. The Holy Spirit, thirdly, applies the work of Jesus. He applies the work of Jesus. Jesus has accomplished salvation. All that we need is in him. Our task is to announce it, to invite people to hear and to trust Christ, to hear his gospel and to put their faith in him. The Holy Spirit applies that work to those who receive him in faith, giving them new life, covering them with the righteousness of Christ, forgiving all all their sins and giving them an eternal hope. He changes lives by applying the work of Jesus. We've got a role to play. Announce it. The king has come. He has died. He has risen. Forgiveness is available in his name. Sharing that good news, investing in people and inviting them to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit does his job, convincing, converting, and applying the work of Jesus to their lives. He's given us a mission. And he's entrusted us with the power of the Holy Spirit for the carrying out of that mission. It's not up to us. He is able and he will do it. So what do we do? What do we do with all of this? You notice the disciples in this story were perhaps wondering the same thing as you look at verses 9 and 10 and 11. Jesus gives them this instruction and then he ascends up into heaven kind of this forgotten part of his work, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father uh, after his resurrection. And look at verse 10. They're gazing intently into the sky as Jesus is uh, bodily in his body going back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And two men in white clothing show up. Has this ever happened to you? I'm sure (laughs) probably not. Uh, It happened to the disciples, and it happened to the women who came to the tomb on the first uh, resurrection day. They were standing there at the tomb, which is empty. They're looking at it. Uh, They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And two men appear and ask the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection, why do you seek the living among the dead? They didn't know. Jesus was constantly surprising them, constantly overturning their expectations of what he was going to do. And he, and he does that here with these disciples. He goes up into heaven, and they're just standing there looking. What do we do? What, what are we doing now? And the angels speak to them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. They're implying something here. He's gone back up into heaven. He's sending his spirit. He'll come back. Don't worry about when. He's given you a mission. 
go forth and bear witness to who he is and what he has done. Invest, invite, share, announce, trust the Spirit to do his work of convincing and converting sinners. Go be witnesses. There is work to be done while you wait, while you wait for Christ to come back. Delay often breeds complacency, or when we're more honest, delay often breeds laziness. Ah, I'll do it later. I got, I got time. I got time. There's a delay of events. I don't have to worry about that now. And we procrastinate and we justify that, and, and I, know this, I know how that goes. <laughs> I do it all the time. Delay breeds complacency. Uh, we, we are comfortable and, and this, the fact that we don't know when the kingdom will come in its fullness should not breed complacency, but a sense of urgency. He's coming. He, in the same way that you have seen him go up into heaven, he will return. There's work to be done while you wait. Will it be today? Will it be tomorrow? I don't know. Doesn't matter. He's coming back. And there's work to be done while we wait for him to return. And so really, in the plan of God, delay brings urgency and brings opportunity because there's certainty both about what Jesus has done, sufficient for salvation, and what he will do. He will come back. And when he does, all things will be wrapped up and there will not be any more opportunity at that point. So while we wait... While there's delay, while there's time, we bear witness and work this mission as we wait upon him. The nations need to hear the good news. Beginning in Jerusalem, moving out to Judea, to all Samaria, even to Filbert, York County, Terraquato, Honduras, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Panama, Monterey, the nations at Clemson being brought and reached by RUF International, college students at Winthrop, RUF, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, perhaps the hardest of mission fields. The world needs to hear the announcement that Jesus has done it all. And some people maybe are just waiting for the invitation to come. And the Holy Spirit is already working in their hearts, preparing them to hear to see it in your life, to see the fruit of God's grace in you, and to hear you talk about Jesus and to say, I hear it, and for the first time I understand it, and I want it because I see the witness that you are bearing to Jesus in your own life. So what do we do? We do what the church has been doing for its entire existence, all the way back in the nation of Israel, as they were meant to be a light to the nations. But no longer are we calling people to come into a nation. We're going out to the nations and calling people to come into union with Christ, fellowship with him through faith, to belong to his church across the ages and across the nations. We do what the church has been doing for ages, bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus and its implications for us. So may we understand the universal scope of the kingdom, all nations, all peoples. May we understand the already and not yet nature of the kingdom. It's started, it's established, but it's spreading 
And one day Jesus will bring it to its completion when he returns. And that we would, as we wait, be faithful witnesses to Christ, relying upon the Holy Spirit's power to give us words, confidence, opportunity to bear witness, to go ahead of us, to open hearts so that people would embrace the good news when it's presented, and for the Holy Spirit to apply the power and the beauty of the gospel to those who receive Christ in faith. Uh, May he do it. He will do it. May he use us, and may we be faithful in that task.